All right. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of times in our evangelistic conversations, we are nervous to have those conversations because we don't know where they're going to go with it. We don't know what kind of questions people are going to ask, and we don't know if we're going to have answers. And so I think one of the th ways in which we can help Christians really kind of get out there in sharing Jesus and sharing the gospel is to think well about what Christians believe so that we can go out and share it well and help people understand what it is that we believe. And so that is going to be the goal of today's conversation. My name is Ryan, the president of Think Well, trying to get you to think well about Christianity and how we engage the culture well. And today we are going to be having a conversation on the beliefs of Christianity coming from this book, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, a practical and comparative guide to what the Bible teaches. Now, as we'll talk about in our conversation, this is really going to go over a lot of what Christians believe, and it's going to be a good kind of introduction to Christianity. We're going to talk about in the context of Mormons, but I, as I read this, I thought, well, this is just a good overview of Christian doctrine and can kind of help prepare you for any conversations that you will have. And so my guest to talk about it is the author of this book and introducing Christianity to Mormons, Eric Johnson. He is on staff and one of the senior researchers at Mormonism Research Ministries, has wrote and written other books on Mormonism, like Mormonism 101 and Answering Mormon Questions. The last time he came on the show was back in 2018 when it was podcast only, talking about the book he co-authored with Sean McDowell uh, titled Sharing the Good News with Mormons. So Eric, thanks again for coming on and being a repeat guest. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate it. You know, as, as my listeners know, I go to Utah a lot. I'll be back in Utah here in about two weeks. And so uh, finding resources that give a good understanding on what Christians believe, on what Mormons believe, to have better conversations uh, are always nice. And Mormonism Research Ministries and your work and Bill's work is one of the go-to resources. So I appreciate the work that you guys do. And maybe just very briefly, for those who don't know anything about you or your ministry, uh, can you kind of lay out what you guys at Mormonism Research Ministries do? Yeah, Bill McKeever is the founder. He started the ministry in 1979. So this has been over 40 years since we've been uh, doing this. I, I joined up with him as a volunteer in 1989. I taught for a couple of decades in Southern California where we lived. Bill moved here in 2004 to Salt Lake City, uh, Utah area. I waited until 2010 and followed him uh, with my wife and two of my three kids when I left behind in California there. And uh, basically we do two things. Number one, we want to share our faith with Latter-day Saints. And so we do that on a regular basis at different venues, different events. The second is we want to train Christians on how to be able to not only understand Mormonism, but to explain uh, what the gospel is all about in a way that they can understand. So as you mentioned, we've written books. We have a website, mrm.org. Uh, we get about 1,500 hits a day. Uh, unique hits. Uh, we also have a podcast of our own that has over 3,000 in the archive. So we've been doing that since 2011, wow. five days a week. It's called Viewpoint on Mormonism. That is found on our website, mrm.org slash podcast. You can see the newest episodes as well as our, our archive. Uh, we have also six radio stations that play the 14-minute show uh, in in Salt Lake City, in two in Idaho, one in Nevada, California. We just added this past month a radio station, the main Christian station in Honolulu, Hawaii. Many Latter-day wow. Saints live in Hawaii. So yeah. that's another way that we get exposed is through that radio show. 
Wonderful. Now, you guys, as you just mentioned, are producing a ton of content. Uh, why kind of write this book? What's different about this book? And, you know, as I was reading it, what seems to be on the surface different is that, you know, if, if someone's looking to pick this up and, and learn about what Mormons believe, it's not going to be as much of that. This is really kind of a Christian doctrine, as I mentioned, kind of explaining it to others versus a here's what Mormons believe or that sort of thing. So kind of what is unique about this and, and why can it contribute this to the work that you guys are doing? Well, our, a book that if people want to know the differences more in detail, Mormonism 101 that Bill and I wrote in 2015 with Baker Books would be the book I would recommend. Yeah. This book is not meant to be that. It's more meant to be an uh, explanation of Christianity to somebody who comes from an LDS worldview. Whether they're thinking about leaving the church, but they're open to listening, or if they've already left the church, we have seen... Uh, Latter-day Saints leaving the church in droves. And so one of the things that I want to be able to do is, since they're leaving, to be able to give them an alternative where they can still believe in God, where they can still hold to Jesus as being the Savior, albeit in a much different manner, because Mormonism and Christianity are not the same. We have many differences from top to bottom. But hopefully, a book like this is going to be helpful for somebody who doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but wants to better understand what it is we as Christians believe, our essential issues, whether you go to this denomination or that denomination. As evangelical Christians, we hold the same essentials, even though we might disagree on some of the peripherals, which are in-house in issues. We can debate those, and those are great. But we walk away as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And only having that through a true relationship with God Jesus and an understanding of how salvation comes is the way that somebody really is a Christian. Yeah. Now, I want to kind of clarify, and I think that's really helpful to kind of understand what's different about it. One of the things you mentioned in the book is um, wanting to have this as a resource to be able to hand to your LDS family, friend, you know, missionary at your door to kind of help explain Christianity to them. And and so if this is a book that I'm going to be handing to someone of the LDS faith, I think there's two things that initially stand out is one, the fact that you use the word Mormon in the title uh, is now kind of a taboo thing of you're supposed to say members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so is that maybe creating a, a stumbling block to to be able to hand this to your LDS friend if, if right there on the beginning it's introducing Christianity to Mormons. Why use that word Mormons in the title? Oh, that's a great question. And look, many people are not going to take the book, no matter what it said, if it wasn't written from a church <laughs> source. So you're already uh, behind the eight ball on that. But yeah, this book, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, I've already got controversy in the first two words because Mormons are Christian. At least that's what they'll tell you. That was my next Just question like to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so you got introducing Christianity. That's going to be a negative. Two Mormons, you're referring to in 2018, the now 98-year-old prophet of the church, Russell M. Nelson, declared that he was he had an impression that Jesus is offended whenever the word Mormon, LDS, or Mormonism is used because it replaces the name of Jesus Christ in the church's name. And, and so he came up with that in 2018, just after he had taken over the office from the 17th, uh, excuse me, from the 16th president, Thomas S. Monson. Uh, that's quite interesting because this is a church that is used Mormon all the way through its history. In fact, 15th uh, President Gordon B. Hinckley wrote a book, What About the Mormons, back in the 40s. Uh, they had a campaign, I Am a Mormon. That was a campaign yeah. just 12 years ago. Uh, you had a choir that was called the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Wasn't Jesus offended all along? Why did it take till 2018? And I'll tell you, there was a disagreement between Hinckley and Nelson in 1990, because in 1990, in the April General Conference, the conference that is churchwide, 
the Latter-day Saints stop what they're doing to listen to the prophets and apostles speak from Salt Lake City, uh, Nelson said that we shouldn't be using that term. Well, in the next conference in October, Hinckley referenced that from the apostle. He was a uh, apostle as well, but he was in the first presidency. And then he went on to say how he thought Mormon was a fine word, that they could call us worse, he said. He even uh, he, he referenced uh, Mormon as meaning more good. So that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But OK, I'm not trying to offend Latter-day Saints with the title. But look what I can do in four words that the um, Latter-day Saints, how would he want me to do this? Introducing evangelical Christianity to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I can't do that. And, and I can't call them the Church of Jesus Christ, which is their the, 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 uh, the website address, the Church of Jesus Christ dot org because uh, I don't believe that they're the Church of Jesus Christ. So they've got me here. I'm not going to use 47 keystrokes either to give the whole name of the church, which would be confusing to the main audience of this book. It really is written for Christians. Now, yes, Ryan, I do want Christians to be able to hand this off to a Latter-day Saint. I wrote it specifically so it could be. I try not to be offensive in any way. I'm speaking the truth in love, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. But at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for a, a title that if Christianity is uh, has a historical meaning, and I think it does, and Mormons have traditionally been used, if the Latter-day Saint doesn't want to read it for that, uh, there's nothing more I can do. But for the Christian, I'm hoping that that will be a catchy enough title to help them to understand. There is a way to help the Latter-day Saint better understand what Christians believe, or at least are supposed to believe, and to do it in a way that approaches this from, uh, to somebody from a LDS worldview. Because you're speaking their same language, and when you use the terms God, Jesus, uh, salvation right. by grace, they agree with those things. And uh, the, the problem is, though, they have different meanings to them. So in this book, I'm going to use stories, 10 chapters, and each chapter has a real-life story of an evangelism encounter that I had in my own life and then use that encounter to explain the information so it's not just cut and dry here are a bunch of facts i'm trying to show how this information can be used yeah now you mentioned kind of the other one and and uh you know just uh, maybe a little bit more on that because uh, you know kind of included in that answer but uh the, the idea of christianity right and you know every time i go to utah one of the first responses people get is like hey i'm a christian here to tell you about jesus and it's like well i'm a christian too uh how would you maybe help navigate in that conversation and this understanding of when in many of these conversations the, the claim is going to be made well mormons are christian too why are you trying to introduce christianity to them well, there's several things, Ryan, that I would point out. Number one, you never want to tell the latter day saint what he or she believes. That's going right. to be very important. And and, and so we, we don't want to say you believe this, you believe that. Rather, you ask the question, well, what is it you believe about Jesus being your Savior? What do you believe about grace and, and salvation by grace? And, and let them explain. But you do have to have that understanding to be able to, to have a cogent uh, conversation, one that both sides are understanding by defining terms. What do you mean is one of the best questions that we can ask. But I don't go up to Latter-day Saints and say, I'm a Christian and you're not. Uh, we actually talk about this in chapter one of our book, Answering Mormon's Questions, uh, that was written in 2013 with Kriegel. That's a book that answers 38 common questions that Mormons will ask us. And we need to have answers, as 1 Peter 3:15 and 16 says we're supposed to do. So I don't, I don't use that as a club to say, I'm a Christian, you're not. If it gets brought up to me, and the Latter-day Saint says, as you have said, well, 
we're Christians too, then I can say, well, what do you mean when you say Christian? Well, we're followers of Christ. I said, so is that because the name Jesus is in your church's name? Well, yeah, it's in our church's name. Well, what about the Church of Christ? Is that a Christian church that uh, that has complete truth? The people in the Church of Christ, are they are they going to get the very best that God has to offer in this life? Well, they're not members of the LDS Church, and so, no, that's not going to be true. What about the Muslims? They have a belief in Jesus. He's one of the seven greatest prophets. Peace be upon him, the, the Muslim would say. And, and yet their belief is a different Jesus as well. Hare Krishnas that I've talked to, they believe Jesus is a good guru. It says in 2 Corinthians 11:4, Ryan, that false Jesuses do exist. Just yeah. because you have a Jesus, just because you worship one God, just because you use the Bible, that doesn't necessarily make you Christian. There are some important doctrinal issues that we need to discuss before we can claim the other is a Christian. And I'm going to say, yes, I don't believe uh, Mormonism it teaches what Christianity does. And if somebody holds to that, I can't call them a brother and sister in the Lord. I need to know what it is that they what is it that they hold as their uh, fundamental beliefs before I can say, yes, I can agree with you on that. Well, Mormonism, unfortunately, denies or distorts every fundamental teaching of the historic church. There's no way that I'll be able to call them Christian, too. Yeah. And I want to get into some of those um, those doctrinal differences, right, as, as we try to think well about this and and hopefully, you know, help prepare those who are listening and watching to to be able to navigate those conversations and accurately explain what Christianity teaches and what we believe. But but two things already came in the live chat that I think are kind of preliminary before we can even get to this. And one comment was said that this person's in-laws uh, are, are Mormon and they've made it clear that they're never going to stop believing Mormonism. They will wait until judgment day to see who's right and who's wrong. How do you oh. go about just trying to have this conversation with someone who's saying, look, I don't I don't even want to listen to you. I, there's nothing you're ever going to say that's going to change my mind. What do you do in that situation? That is a common opposition uh, to, to what we do. I don't care what you say. Nothing will convince me. Well, which means that you're not open-minded. I hope that I'm open-minded enough. I was when I was 16 years of age in 1978 when Jim Jones uh, had a thousand people drink poison Kool-Aid and they committed suicide together. I was shocked as a 16-year-old who grew up in a Christian church. I, I asked myself, man, what if I'm in a group like this? So I ended yeah. up doing a lot of investigation. I read the Quran. I read the uh, Bhagavad Gita. I, I, I read uh, um, the, the Watchtower material. I even read the Book of Mormon just, and talking to as many people as I could, taking classes at San Diego State on world religions for me to understand the best way I can. You cannot force anybody to listen to the other side, Christianity. This book is not going to work for the true blue Mormon as this, as the in-laws here apparently are. But I think it's very sad because uh, I always like to ask the question, what if you were wrong? Wouldn't you want to know the other side? Wouldn't you want to know? And the Latter-day Saint says, as these people apparently have, no, I refuse to listen. Well, it says in 1 Corinthians, if you read chapters 1 and 2, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And unless the Holy Spirit is involved, Romans chapter 8, there's no way that a person can become uh, a saved individual. Here's the thing, Ryan. We are only in sales. God is the one who is in production. And when we understand that we present the best possible way and somebody says, I don't want it, and they put their fingers in their ears, it's sad. I'm, you know, can't we discuss this? Come, let us reason together. It says in Isaiah one. Well, could I mean maybe I'm wrong too. Could you help me to see your side? 
and show me your scripture to help me understand. Maybe Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God. Maybe the Book of Mormon is true scripture, and you owe it to me to try to explain your side just as much as I believe I owe it to you, and and let the information um, uh, lay lay it out there. Inference to the best explanation, we call that. We, we take a look at the evidence and we say, what makes the most sense? We do this every day. When we cross the street, we look both ways. Well, because we're looking for evidence. We don't just take it by faith that we can cross the street. We have to see what's out there. And when the Bible says, Ryan, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, that we are supposed to test everything. And 1 John 4.1 says that we are to try the spirits, to test them, to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Unfortunately, many Latter-day Saints are not reading their Bibles. They're not paying much attention, besides what the church wants them to know. Hmm. And so for many, uh, and I'm not trying to say Mormonism is a cult. That's a loaded term. But I don't think in many ways a Mormons like this are any different than the people who follow Jim Jones to the jungles of Guyana. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. And, you know, I, I'm just thinking back the other day, like, you know, we, we've— I'm glad they're not, not not everyone is like this, right? We we've gone to Utah and just had wonderful conversations. Yeah. The other day I ran into Jehovah's Witness and he's like, Look, my job is to tell you what I believe and your job is to tell me what you believe. So let's sit down and have a conversation. You know, and it was yeah. it was a fun time because we recognize this evangelistic need of, of getting things right. But you know, that's one of the hardest things is I have students who ask, like, what am I supposed to do when the person I'm trying to talk to just won't listen? It's like Look, there's a point where you can just try to keep beating it and it's just going to make things worse. You know, if they tell you to stop, maybe stop and come back in a few months and try again. But, uh, you know, that is one of the most difficult things. Now, the other kind of preliminary question that came in here is is kind of just starting a question. This person saying starting a question online. So old things pass away, post the question. What is the best way to start a conversation with a Mormon online? Do you have much experience in that? Yeah, you know, I mean, if it's a cold call, and, and I mean, what's your favorite tactic? We wrote a book, as you mentioned, four years ago, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, where we gave out 24 different tactics, not necessarily right. online uh, ways. But uh, I, I think uh, a, a good question to start off with, if you don't know the person very well, is to say, so explain to me, why are you LDS? I think that's a fair question. They should ask me the question, why am I a Christian? Why? Because I think I think based on the inference of the best explanation, Christianity offers the best direction to objective truth. I think that's the case. I, yeah. I believe it's true. Why is it you believe? Many Latter-day Saints will say, I prayed about it. I have a testimony. You've heard that plenty of times when you've come here to Utah. That's the common reaction. Well, we have to understand that Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful and uh, desperately wicked. But we have to be so careful of our feelings because feelings can deceive. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, what does the evidence have to say? By asking the question, what is it that you believe or why are you LDS? And by the way, as I mentioned before, don't tell the Latter-day Saint what he or she believes. Ask them the questions. Play the offensive role. Greg Kokel wrote a book a few years ago called Tactics. Uh, uh, the Colombo Tactics is perfect for the kind of uh, thing that I do because yeah. I, I want to draw out of them and let them have to take the defensive position. You become on the offense when you ask the questions and then look for things that you can talk about. And then when you hear something like salvation by grace through faith, then find out more what they believe about that and why. That's intelligent conversation. And we can walk away agreeing to disagree. But 
I, I don't think um, you have to be mean-spirited to do this. I, I think it's something that's uh, very natural. And if, I'm not good at that, by the way. Whoever wrote you and said that they do this online, I, I'm not a cold caller on the online. I'm more, I'd rather see the person in, in person when I'm out Absolutely. on the street. But but either way, is it, you're doing the evangelism. So congratulations to somebody who says, how do I start this? But I would consider uh, that book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a lot of good tactics in that that are available to you. Yeah, that is a great book. And, you know, one of the advantages of online is being able to think and process about a response before you have to respond and not have to have something in the moment. You can Google search something or look something up really quick before you have to respond. So so getting into this, you know, and, and again, as I said at the beginning, I really do believe how I started off the show is that oftentimes we we are fearful to get into these conversations because we don't know really what we believe ourselves. And what if they ask me about what I believe about these things? And I don't know how to respond. And often that's when it gets tricky is, is I remember the one of the first conversations I ever had with a Mormon as I was on an airplane, as I was uh, sitting next to him, they said, you know, why do Christians think that those of the LDS faith are not Christian? I was like, well, you guys don't believe in Jesus. He's like, yeah, we do. I'm like, you don't believe in God? I'm like, yeah, we do. You don't think he rose from the dead? I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, we do. I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But often it's like when, when the question comes back, well, why do you believe? And so you start here in your book, um, really laying out two chapters worth on that the Bible is God's special revelation and that it is reliable and is trust, trustworthy. Uh, these are often, you know, really big points with, with, with the LDS faith being a restorative gospel, restorative movement of, of plain and precious truths being taken out of the Bible. And this is a restoration of that gospel. Uh, why is it, or, or how can you lay out or help people understand uh, a little bit more about how to make a case for the trustworthy and reliability, of the special revelation of the Bible so that they can defend that aspect? Before I do that, let me tell you a story that's related to yours, because I, I, I learned under several men who were uh, NIV translators, authentic NIV yeah. translators. This is in, in the fall of 1985. I was taking a class with a professor named Dr. Ronald Youngblood, a good friend of mine who passed away a few years ago. Uh, and uh, he, he had two PhDs. He was an incredible man, uh, did a lot of writing besides translating the Bible. How would you like to have that title? Yeah, I translate yeah. the Bible. They would tell us stories <laughs> of how they debated what should be put in the Bible. Imagine that kind of a job. Oh, but yeah. he, he, uh, he went on a plane uh, one weekend uh, during this first class I ever took in seminary in 1985. Uh, and, and, uh, and it was next to a Mormon. And he and the Mormon talked for like four hours. And he did not know how to witness to the guy. I mean, everything he said, like you, you know, well, you know, God is true. And Jesus, he didn't really know what Mormonism taught. <laughs> he came to our class. I have to give uh, Dr. Youngblood kudos because it's hard when you have two PhDs to say, you know, I, I need to do better. And he said, I stand here before you at that time. I think we were all gentlemen. I think he said, gentlemen, we, I stand here before you today and that will never happen again. I'm going to do mm-hmm. some homework. And I'm going to learn because I did a horrible job. I, I appreciate the honesty because he <laughs> wanted to share his faith, but he didn't know the language. And yeah. it is definitely a language barrier. Coming to your question, as far as my first two chapters of the 10, dealing with the historicity, authenticity, reliability, inspiration of the Bible. I think this is crucial because in Mormonism, there's 13 articles of faith that were created by Joseph Smith. And the eighth article of faith says that the Bible is true as far as it is translated correctly. Ask the Latter-day Saint if he were to bring that up or you ask him, do you believe the Bible is true as far as it's translated correctly? They know where that came from and they'll usually say absolutely. Well, what do you think it means translated correctly? They'll tell you about how a corrupt priest or 
multiple corrupt priests came in and took out plain and precious parts, as you mentioned. Uh, they added things in. We can't really trust it because we don't have the original autographs. Well, there's a couple of problems with this because they uh, a lot of Latter-day Saints, first off, don't realize... A, I agree there can be bad translations. The New World Translation is a horrible translation used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, yeah, a translation from one language into another is, is another way of calling it a translation from the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic into English. And the, by the way, the Jehovah's Witness translators, they only had one guy that had any Greek, and that was classical Greek. So it was terrible, the job they did. They used their presuppositions to do the translating. You never want to do that. Uh, so so you have you have multiple manuscripts. Let me give you a couple of examples. We have what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I talk about that in chapter one. Uh, we have found every book but one in the 11 caves, including in cave one, a place I visit every year when I go to Israel and take people. Cave one is where Isaiah, two copies of it were found, including one called the Great Scroll of Isaiah, dated 125 BC, a thousand year gap before the Masoretic text first came about that we have today from about uh, the 10th century AD. So you have the whole copy of Isaiah that was in a cave for who knows how long, at least at least uh, um, 1,800 years, somewhere in that vicinity, uh, 1,900 years because it was discovered in 1947, that has all the same prophecies. It, there's not much difference besides Masoretic, including the vowels and and the original not, and there's a few accent mark differences. Scholars say, whoa, we go bridges gap by a thousand years. You would have to have had a corrupt priest go into that cave somehow and make those changes somehow to be able to coordinate with Isaiah and the other places. But no, what those scrolls do is show the authenticity and the reliability of our Old Testament. Go to the New Testament, it's even stronger. We have over 5,000 Greek, Koine Greek manuscripts, including three entire uh, New Testament books that are in what are called Codex or Codices, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex, Codex Sinaiticus. Those three are the complete form of the New Testament. When those three from the fourth century correspond, scholars say that's what the autograph said. But we have 5,000, plus we have 24,000 copies in other languages. Plus we have the writings of church fathers. You know what they used to do, Ryan, is they used to write each other in verses. They didn't have a computer to go look it up. And so, oh, by the way, this is what Paul said. They would write it out. Think about what a corrupt priest is going to have to do. Oh, I want to add in uh, uh, some kind of a doctrine. I want to add in the Trinity. Oh, let me let me add that in. Or let me take out the idea that men can become gods. So they take that out. He's going to have to not only do that on one manuscript, he's going to have to go over there, over here, to different continents. Right. That's going to be one busy priest or a collection of priests who are doing all of this changing. I don't think most Latter-day Saints know anything about textual criticism or how we came up with the, the manuscripts that make up our Bible today. But when you understand the wealth of those manuscripts, when you understand that the Bible is true, uh, as far as this, and they don't mean translation, but the, the trans, transmission of the text, that the transmission of the text is accurate and reliable, then we have something to work off of. If I don't have a source, if I don't have the Bible to help me as my background primary source, 
then I have nothing but mere opinion. And it becomes my opinion versus yours. But if the Bible is, as it claims to be, the word of God that was inspired, and it's profitable for us to teach from and to understand doctrine and correct one another, if that is the case, then this special revelation of God giving down his mind, his will for us into paper form today, that we and we have so many English good English translations that we can read this for ourselves and be able to understand what it is that God wants us to believe and how he wants us to live. That is, I think, so very important. That's why I spent two chapters on that. And would you say here shortly, uh, before I kind of, something I want to say on that is like, if, if we can make a good argument that the Bible is reliable, that it has been transmitted and translated accurately, that the plainest precious truths have not been taken out, then there's no need to restore the gospel and therefore... Mormonism is not true. Is it? Is it that simple of a case that can be made if we can prove the reliability and trustworthiness and authority of Scripture alone? Well, it's God who supposedly told Joseph Smith at the first vision uh, in 1820 when he was 14 years of age that all of the creeds were an abomination. All the professors were corrupt, that there was no truth. That's what's called the great apostasy. It's one of the hard things to get a Mormon to ever come to Christianity. They have in the back of their mind that all of Christianity became corrupt soon after the death of the apostles, and it wasn't restored until Joseph Smith. Even when somebody rejects Joseph Smith and leaves the Mormon church, that thought is still in their mind, which is the reason why many people don't come running to your Christian church. They they end up running to atheism, agnosticism, or nothing at all, which is the real shame. So it, it might not be that easy at all, but yeah, I mean, if the Bible is true, there are no lost, plain, and precious uh, truths, uh, then uh, it, it has been believed for 2,000 years in different forms. I realize there were, there's been heresy throughout the 2,000 years, but for the most part, we know what the Bible says and how we're supposed to think and live. If that book is accurate, there is no need for the LDS Church. Yeah, yeah, and then what is it? Chapter 13 of First Nephi would be would false in saying that the plainest precious shoes have been taken out, but, yep. um, you know, but as you were talking about the, 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 the manuscripts and everything, you know, a, a analogy popped in my head. I love thinking of analogies, but you know, the common one is like, you know, if, when people ask, why don't, what if we, why don't we, what if we just had the autograph, the original? And it's like, well, if we just had the original, it would be easy to make a change to that and, and then corrupt it and then not know really what was communicated. But when you have something like a, a newspaper, the LA Times, yeah, if you only had the original on the computer, someone could hack into the computer, alter that original article, you never know what the author wrote. But the moment that newspaper has been, you know, sent out to 40,000 homes and you got 40,000 copies out there, good luck getting them all back. But the other one that, that came to mind uh, as you were talking that I thought of is is it's kind of like when people send a tweet out on the internet or post something on Facebook and it's like racist or whatever and it's bad and a bunch of people screenshot it and then all of a sudden they delete it but that screenshot then just spreads and even though they deleted their tweet there's no taking those words back there's no like oh I didn't say that oh here's what I meant it's like no we, we have it documented we have your screenshots even though the original is gone and that's what kind of popped in my mind. It's kind of like that of like you, you send out that message and once that's been screenshotted and spread, you can delete that message, but it's not going away. And everyone knows what you have said. And so it makes it more trustworthy, more reliable, and we can still reconstruct it just like we can with tweets or newspapers that, that had out. But um, yeah, well, on, on that real quick, yeah, uh, yeah. We, we have the autographs. Let's, have, let's say we do. We have, we have here uh, Ephesians. We have the original which we don't. We don't have any of the autographs. Right. Well, is that going to be a case for uh, uh, the, the lack of copies? I think you're making good illustrations there. Uh, but let's. who's going to own that? Who owns F, uh, Ephesians if, right. if there is such a book? 
Well, it's probably going to be the richest uh, religion out there, uh, the Catholic Church. Have you ever been to the Vatican and seen the wealth of things they have? They have Codex Vaticanus as one of the most reliable New Testament manuscripts. Can you imagine if they owned that and there were no copies? All we have is that. Are you going to trust Ephesians when Paul says you need to go to the mediator Mary to be able to talk to the son or whatever, whatever is said? We're not going to be able to ever trust that. How do I know that they didn't monkey with that? But here, instead, as you said, we can go to these different uh, um, copies. And I think it's much better than having the autograph. If the Latter-day Saint insists on having the autograph, well, they don't even have the autograph for the Book of Mormon. Right. Supposedly, the angel Moroni took the gold plates back. And uh, several thousand changes have been made since the book was first published in 1830. Yeah, I think that was a good question. I read, as you mentioned, the book is like, well, do you have the autographs of yours and is yours trustworthy? But, you know, what you mentioned is just true. We, we, we have examples of scribes that made changes to fit theology or to try to clarify points. But because there are so many copies, we go, yep, there's changes made, dismiss that. And so we know that people were changing the manuscripts for their purpose but we're able to spot it because there are many copies out there. Uh, so I think that's good. Now, now one thing you mentioned, and I think this is important because recently I was asked to give a talk on the existence of God and, and it's like, well, most of the people that are going to be listening already kind of believe in God. So it's not said, but it was almost like, well, you know, what's really the point? Um, but, but we sometimes lose the importance or we don't realize the importance that for someone who already claims belief in God, it's still important to make a case for God's existence because if that belief system falls apart, God often goes with it. So you have a chapter here on kind of making the case for God. And we talk a lot about that on that show, but kind of, I would love for you to go into a little bit more detail about why include a, a chapter on making a case for God's existence to a people group who already believe that God exists. That's a great question, Ryan. And uh, quite simply, the reason why is when people leave the church, they're not running to your Christian church, the evangelical Christian church. In fact, there's a, a Mormon blogger by the name of Jana Reese. Uh, this book was written in 2019 called The Next Mormons. Uh, and in this book, it's published by Oxford. And so this is a scholarly book. She did a lot of surveying in here. I recommend this for anybody who's a student of the LDS religion. But she found out all kinds of things, including why people were leaving. But one survey she did was, where are people going after they leave? I found it fascinating that 45% of everyone who leaves the church, according to Jana Reese, are going to atheism, agnosticism, or nothing at all. That's almost half are not wanting anything to do with God, not wanting anything to do with Jesus, even though they right. once believed in God and Jesus, they claim to be their savior. 45%, 21% call themselves just Christian. That doesn't mean they've been going to any Christian church. In fact, they specifically are not, but they left uh, a church that believed in Jesus. They may still believe in God and Jesus or not. It's no big deal. Sleeping in on Sunday mornings is great. All the rest. I'm just Christian because I'm a moral person. That's moralism. Uh, and and uh, I don't murder people or commit adultery. So that 21%, you add that to the 45%, two out of three people are not headed to any other religion at all. Okay, that, that's, I think, a very high number. And only one third go to any kind of religion, including Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, liberal Protestant, and evangelical Christianity. And the number one out of all the different religions was actually evangelical Christianity, which, okay, that's great. But it's only one out of 10. 10% of people who leave Mormonism come to evangelical Christianity. I think 
that is a terrible number. Uh, so we, we're talking about a minority of people who leave the church who actually are looking for any relationship with God. But Ryan, I talk to people on a regular basis who have left the church in recent years or even in the past year. Just the other day, I was talking to three different couples at the uh, UTLM bookstore run by Sandra Tanner. I'm sure you've been there a few times. Oh, yeah, many times. Over in Salt Lake City across the street from the ballpark. And they came in to look for some books about Mormonism and showing how it's wrong. And so I asked each one of them. They were all there at the same time. So that was very interesting. And I said, uh, I asked each one. I said, so you left the church when? three months ago, six months ago, all within the year. And then I asked each of them individually, I said, so where are you at now? When they come into that bookstore and I'm manning it because I, Bill McKeever and I do take over on Saturdays to help Sandra have weekends off. I, I like to find out where are they at now? All three of them had no church. All three of them claimed to be either agnostic or atheist. Three couples who had never met each other came in at a little bit different times, but they were all there at the same time. I asked one, why did you leave the church in the first place? She says, well, the LGBTQ issue, that was the reason. I think it's a bad reason to leave a church. I think you should leave it not because you disagree with its social agenda, but that it's not a true church. That would be the reason to leave, but that was what she said. Uh, um, and uh, and so, so we talked a little further. I asked her if she would be willing to read the Bible in a modern language, have the King James open, uh, she could do that, but to have this modern version and read the book of John maybe, or read the book of Romans, would you be willing to do that? She actually said yes. She says, I need to give that a chance. I, I gave her kudos. I gave her a Bible. I gave her one that she could read. She says, I'll read, John. I, I'll do what you say. In fact, she says, is there a book that I could get that would help me uh, understand evidence for God? Well, we carry at that bookstore, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an, an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. I pointed her to the book. She bought it. She says, you know what? I need to do due diligence. I've only been out of this thing for three months. I'm a little confused right now. I appreciate that kind of demeanor. But that chapter three is meant for the Christian because you're going to have to be able to talk to atheists and agnostics if you're going to talk to people who have left the church. And if yeah. you're surprised by the arguments used by Richard Dawkins, the other new atheists that are out there, uh, good luck, because if you're not familiar with that, you're going to be lost and deer in the headlights. So you better get used to the, the, the arguments that are going to be used and, and reasons why it makes sense. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist is actually a great title because I think it requires more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Because let's be honest, we have a wealth of information, the Bible being the way it is accurate, I believe, uh, the idea that there is a God. I think chapter three helps to show that. Uh, the idea that Jesus really existed and that I believe that he died on the cross for sins, uh, that for forgiveness of sins is available. Uh, I think those are things. See, here's the thing, Ryan. We have, an, we have a great product, and I'm not trying to minimize the gospel, but I have a degree from San Diego State in advertising and marketing. And when you have a good product, when you're a Toyota salesman, You've got, you've got half the battle. I mean, they come in and they want to buy your product because they know all about your product. Well, we have a product that a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know. They have these straw man arguments against what we believe. Oh, you believe in the Trinity. Uh, you believe Jesus is God. Well, who was he talking to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, that's a right. silly question because we didn't say Jesus is the Father. We said Jesus is God. That's where the Trinity comes in in one of the chapters I write. 
So I think it's important for us to be able to understand that and, and realize there, there are many former Latter-day Saints or even some still in the church who don't believe in God. We need to be able to give good reasons why it makes sense to believe in God. Yeah, and we, we counter the exact same thing. My last trip there in uh, end of June, like I said, I'm going back in two weeks, but I was there in June. And uh, when we're around, you know, we're in Provo and we're around the BYU campus, it's it's mostly running into LDS uh, students and, and members. Uh, but we also do evangelism at the Traverse Mountain Outlets down by Lehigh, just south of Salt Lake City, between mm. Salt Lake City and Provo. And and the students often walk away and they're like, we were trained to talk to Mormons and all we ran into were ex-Mormon atheists. We don't know how yeah. to have that conversation. Good. And so, you know, yeah. there's a lot of like, all right, we need, we need to train on how to make an argument for God's existence and a case for Christianity. Uh, because not everyone you're going to run into is a member of the LDS faith, even though that's what we trained you to have conversations with and, and where we'll be taking you. But, you know, that, that definitely is, is very common. We run into the same thing. You know, Salt Lake City, uh, Ryan, fewer than half of the people are, are uh, Mormon. I mean, in this right. state, we have over 60%. And yet, I think it's in the low 40s uh, for Salt Lake City. I live in Salt Lake County. We have a lot of uh, skeptics here in our midst. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. You need to be prepared for that. Absolutely. So uh, of the kind of remaining issues that you discussed here, you know, we don't have time to work through all of them. I want to encourage those to get the book because it talks about, you know, the nature of God, Jesus, the resurrection, the Trinity, justification, sanctification, then growing in your faith. Uh, what would you, you say is maybe one of the big ones or maybe top two that we can kind of work through of, of, of issues that Christians maybe need to get more grounded in and be able to explain better to be able to work through those difficult conversations and, 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 and parse out the differences between Mormon doctrine and Christian theology? They're going to have to understand the language being used, the terms that are the same as yours, and to distinguish between what you believe versus what the Latter-day Saint believes. So again, you cannot tell the Latter-day Saint, oh, you believe this, you believe that. Ask them what they believe. But generally, you're going to find Latter-day Saints are going to come from the same cloth. They, they will have the same answers. You talk to one faithful Latter-day Saint, you talk to a hundred of them. You, you know that talking on the streets because you can even start to think the way they will. <laughs> and so, for instance, I'll use salvation as, as an example. We might say to the Latter-day Saint, oh, we as Christians believe that we're saved by grace through faith. And what's the Latter-day Saint going to say to that? Well, we do too. Right. And, uh, and so, you, you know, you quote, uh, you quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Well, they have a verse that's very similar, but it is different. Uh, and, and that verse is, uh, is 2 Nephi 25, 23. We're saved by grace after all we can do. So there's a difference there. But Latter-day Saints are going to say, you know, we believe in, in grace. We believe in the atonement. Well, you have to understand what they mean by that, because Mormonism teaches we lived in a previous existence in a spirit world called the pre-existence or pre-mortality, where we chose Jesus rather than Lucifer's plan of salvation, giving us the ability to be born here on earth. Because of that decision in the previous life we lived, which we don't remember, but Mormonism teaches to be true, we are then qualified to go to one of three kingdoms of glory. So when a Latter-day Saint talks about, oh, we believe we're saved by grace, and so are you. Oh, we believe in the atonement that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, was finished on the cross. Uh, and you go, you could say, well, my goodness, that sounds very similar. That's not true salvation in Mormonism. That's what's called general salvation or immortality. It means that you get to live for uh, eternity in one of these three kingdoms. 
probably the terrestrial or telestial kingdom, the bottom two kingdoms. But then that verse, we're saved by grace after all we can do. And Mormonism very clearly teaches that without works, you're not able to, uh, to, to enter the celestial kingdom and become gods. I mean, uh, the, the scripture says, um, for I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. You have to do the commandments of the Lord. DNC 1, 31 and 32 is what I quoted. Or DNC 25, 15, keep the commandments of God continually. And unless you do where I am, you cannot come. Those two verses, and Mormons understand that because uh, exaltation, eternal life, celestial glory, all are synonymous terms. And and so they're not going to the celestial kingdom to become gods and goddesses to, to be with their families forever just based on grace and atonement. No, you have to keep the commandments of God continually. And you ask the Latter-day Saint, how many of those commandments must you keep? And the answer is almost 100% of the time, all of them. Uh, and how often do you have to keep the commandments? All the time. They know the answers to that. Then you ask that question. So how are you doing at that? That's when the Latter-day Saint starts to come up with all kinds of excuses. He starts to say, well, I, I'm trying my best. Uh, you know, uh, well, trying and doing your best is great. But according to your leaders, it's not good. Spencer Kimball said in The Miracle of Forgiveness, a book that he wrote in 1969, he later became the 13th prophet of the church, he, he said, trying is not sufficient, nor is repentance complete when one merely tries to abandon sin. To try is weak, to do the best you can is not strong. You must always do better than you can. This is true in every walk of life. So even he said, it's you're capable of keeping the commandments. First Nephi 3, 7 in the Book of Mormon and Moses chapter 7 both say that God doesn't give commandments that cannot be kept. When are you going to start keeping the commandments? That's the question I asked Latter-day Saints. They are relying on after all you can do. Christianity differs. You have to understand justification, which is what I talked about in chapter 8. You have to understand imputation, that Jesus is the one who does the work, and he credits us with righteousness, with work that we did not have and would never have. Somebody had to forgive us of our sins. It had to be a gift. It can't be based on what you did. That's how the Bible describes it, and I think it makes much more sense than I, me trying to keep all the commandments that I can never actually keep. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, how, how far do you push the conversation in the sense of, okay, I, I you know, true story, I, I was knocking on doors, BYU, sit down in the living room of a student's apartment, him and his wife are sitting there, me and a couple of students are sitting there, and we began to get into exactly what you just shared. And we, we clearly, with distinctions of terms and everything, lay out Christian justification, lay out salvation by grace alone, and they fully agree. And they say, no, that is what I believe. That is how I take it. And we, we laid out all the terms. He said, but here's what your scriptures teach. And they said, well, no, it doesn't really, you know, and, and really what, you know, in my understanding was they're kind of dismissing, not, well, not saying it, dismissing what the Book of Mormon and Doctrines and Covenants is teaching, fully accepting the biblical view of justification, but then still somehow believing that they're consistent with each other. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, like, how far would you push that? Would you just be like, well, guess what? Then you reject this. You are a Christian. Hey, how about that? You know, or, or, uh, or would you kind of know you, I want, you need to get to the point where you recognize there's a difference here, or do you just kind of leave it with that and go, well, I think they believe the right thing. Like kind of, where do you go in that sort of a conversation? 
Yeah, the millennials and the Gen Zs are especially susceptible to postmodernism and coming up with their own ideas. They have they have personal revelation. Uh, we didn't see this 10, 15, 20 years ago so much. Now we're seeing more of that. And here's a couple that probably went to the temple, did what the church said, got married in the temple for time and eternity, probably went on their missions. At least he probably did. And yet here they are saying, well, no, I don't hold to uh, what my scriptures say. I don't hold to a guy like Spencer W. Kimball because he said that many years ago. He said it back in 1969. I, I, you know, I, I think it's different now. Well, I always like to ask the question, Ryan, what makes you think it's any different than the way that what I just quoted from Spencer Kimball, it, what, it, what was true back in 1969? Are you saying truth changes? Or is Spencer W. Kimball a false prophet for saying perfection is an achievable goal? He says that on page 209 of his book. Oh, I, I mean, if he says, well, we're justified by faith alone and, and through grace, and, and so then you have to maybe maybe ask some questions. What I would have asked is, okay, let me get this straight. So all of us are justified by faith. I have faith in Jesus. You have faith in Jesus. So I guess I'm going to the celestial kingdom. Be interesting to know if whether or hmm. not he believes in the celestial kingdom still. I'm sure he does. And so, uh, so, so I, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, a member of your church, and I deny Joseph Smith as being a prophet of God. I don't believe Russell M. Nelson is close to God at all. I don't believe the Book of Mormon is true scripture. But according to what you're telling me, that my faith is good enough. See what they would say on that. Is he willing to commit that you probably are going to end up in the celestial kingdom? Because I doubt he's able to say that he's going to be in the celestial kingdom. That's one thing Latter-day Saints are not able to do is tell you that they know they have eternal life. First John 5.13 says we may know we have eternal life. According to uh, Mormonism, eternal life is synonymous with godhood, exaltation, celestial glory. And yet you ask the most Latter-day Saints, and I would have asked him, if you were to die right now, would you be in the celestial kingdom with your family? And that's where they come up with that excuse. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I don't know. They cannot say with a surety that, that uh, uh, they are going to be in the celestial kingdom. Then they'll ask you, well, do you believe that you're going to be in heaven? And I say, absolutely. That's what the verse says. You may know you have <laughs> eternal life. The Bible talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. Perseverance of the saints, I think, is very clearly taught in the Bible. And that is what allows the Christian to be able to have a peace that passes all understanding. That's something Latter-day Saints don't have because they're always striving for the unreachable. Yeah, I think that's good. Now, a question came in here in the live chat for you from SlamRN. I'll pull it up here on the screen. And it says, uh, what about uh, the personal cost if they lose the faith? I know some fear losing their jobs if they're living in an all-Mormon area. Um, are they shunned by their families these days if they leave? Has anything been changed about that? Um, are they still shunned? Is there fears involved? What about the personal cost? I can't say for 100%, but I'm going to say in many, many cases, yes. It's not as bad as maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses that won't even talk to you if you're walking on one side of the street, they'll go to the other side. It's maybe not that bad, but let me just give you a couple examples. I talked about the couple in chapter 10, 80 years old. They left the LDS church because they discovered that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Uh, 80 years old. Can you imagine you were in this church, born in the covenant, went through all the steps for 80 years and then realized the religion was false. But they didn't want to give up God or Jesus. That, that's an incredible thing. But at the same time, uh, and they've been going to my Bible study for seven years. They're 87 now, both in good health. And uh, that was the one hard thing for the, 
the uh, the lady uh, who who was 80 as well. Uh, am I damning my family by becoming a Christian? Because we don't, you know, we had eternal family altogether, and now we don't have that anymore. They had a hard time telling their kids because they knew that the possibility of possibly not being able to see grandkids or great grandkids was there. But I have a friend, a very close friend who left the church. Uh, he actually was a missionary under Jeffrey R. Holland in Northern California. And, and uh, he came back uh, disgruntled. Uh, it, he ends up becoming an atheist, and he becomes a Christian in 2009. When his parents found out, it was fireworks. So for every Sunday, he used to go over to their house. They would have missionaries there they would feed, and they would want the missionaries to witness to Dave, who had been a missionary himself. So as a young Christian trying to defend all of this, uh, but about six years ago, the family finally said, we don't want we don't want any communication with you anymore. You're dead to us because you have broken the family chain. In fact, he got in a fight with his brother and they actually were punching each other in the face. I mean, it was that kind of a, a brawl. And so it was very hard. My friend this past summer for the first time in six years, his dad is dying. And so they allowed him to go see his dad. He said it was very difficult. Uh, and and guess what they did at Sunday dinner? They brought the missionaries over again for one last try, I guess. So uh, it's been very hard for him. My friend has a good attitude, but he basically has paid the price for becoming a Christian by not being able to see his family any longer. And his dad will probably die in the next year or two. He's losing it really fast. And uh, and he was glad that he could tell his dad he loved him for the last time probably in California. But uh, can you imagine that kind of 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 uh, um, of a situation. I also that same friend and another friend, both males, had um, their wives stay in the church at first, and the bishop, the leader, like a pastor, um, two separate wards. Both the, the women were encouraged to divorce their two husbands, those two husbands, because they were not bringing them to the celestial kingdom. My friend Ken, who passed away, uh, went to the bishop's house, knocked on his door, and said, "You cannot do that. That's my wife. Uh, you don't bother. You, you don't come into a family situation like that." So there is a huge cost. So you have to understand if you've never been in the church, and I haven't either. But you have to understand when you ask somebody to become a Christian and introduce Christianity, you must understand the cost that they might have to pay and and sympathize with them and be there for them and love yeah. them all the way through it. That, I think, is very important. Yeah, I think that's hard for some of us to understand. I know myself included. I born and raised in a Christian family. I didn't have any cost of becoming a Christian. And so sometimes yeah. it's hard to really wrap our minds around what it truly would do to us uh, to accept that. Um, I want to jump over to something here different. Um, uh, I posted a quote uh, from the book on Twitter uh, from your section on the Trinity. And one of my listeners uh, uh, posted said, hey, that's a really good quote. I'm interested to see how he unpacks that. So if I can put you on the spot, uh, read this quote to you and see kind of if, uh, how you would unpack it here without uh, warning you of this ahead of time. Uh, but in the section of the Trinity, you said, I went on to describe how Christ's atonement would have no meaning unless the Trinity is true. If Jesus had been a perfected man, but was not God in the flesh, he would have been powerless to provide full payment for the sins of believers. And so what do you mean here of, of why does Jesus, why does the Trinity have to be true? Why does Jesus have to be not just a perfected man, but God in order for him to be able to pay for the sins of believers? We have evidence in the Old Testament that sacrificial victims were brought and were killed every year at Passover and other holidays they would they would kill the the it was it was not the perspiration that that was the 
efficacious element. It was the expiation, the death of that sacrificial uh, victim. We see in the book of Hebrews that Jesus played the role of both priest and sacrificial victim. His blood was laid upon the altar. If Jesus was just a perfected man but was not God, uh, I mean, he is a perfected man, there's no doubt, but if he, if he lost his deity when he became a man or he never was God in the first place, then all you have is a sacrifice. That, wonderful. I'm glad you had that. Let's do it again next year. You would have had to repeat that sacrifice over and over, but the book of Hebrews says, by one sacrifice, he forever atoned for sins, all of them. Uh, when a Christian becomes a believer uh, and that faith then forgives the sins, past, present, and future. So yeah, I mean, and you also have a problem because the Bible calls Jesus God. How are you gonna deal with this? Because he's not just a God. Mormonism says that he is just a God. But what do you do with, I mean, a verse like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity exists in Jesus. Jesus calling himself the great I am in John 8.58, a reference over to Exodus 3.14. You, a mere man, the Pharisees said, claim to be God. They understood what he was saying. Well, you have a problem if Jesus is God and, uh, and, uh, and, and the, um, uh, the Father is God, you have two different gods. So that's where the Trinity comes in because we don't teach in three separate gods like Mormonism does. And Mormonism is not monotheistic. It is either polytheistic or at the best, henotheistic. Henotheism says that you worship only one God, but believe in the existence of multiple gods. God the Father is just one of many gods and you hope to become gods. But but it's the Trinity says there are three who's. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God on their own and yet they're not each other. They have the essence of God. It's three who's and one what. The one what is the essence of God. Jesus, if he was not God, he's a liar, as C.S. Lewis put it, and he's not considered to be a good teacher. Uh, it, but if he's telling the truth, before Abraham was, I am, then he's somebody to be reckoned with, and you'll have to take that up with him and what the Scripture says. Yeah, I appreciate that. Good answer for uh, putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. I always find it, you know, sometimes they just pull random quotes out of people's books and they're like, I don't remember writing go. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with the I, last, uh, was that? No, I, I was just going to say, I don't quite remember writing that either. That's what happens <laughs> when you write a book. You go, now, what did I say? Especially when you get to be my age. Someday you'll be here, Ryan. I'm 60 years old now and I'm, I, you know, okay. I, oh, yeah, I think I wrote that somewhere in there. Sounds like something I would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we got like two minutes left. I'm going to open up a huge can right here. But maybe just to, in a few minutes, if you can kind of uh, help explain this. I know uh, one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus and the atonement that's accomplished on the cross. And I know Mormons will talk a lot about, you know, the atonement happening in the garden of Gethsemane. So uh, can you kind of work through that just a little bit and try to help those listening kind of what what is the difference there? How do Christians and Mormons see that atonement kind of place maybe, I don't know, being different uh, the garden in the garden versus the cross? And why is that difference there? Um, and kind of, kind of work through that a little bit. So if that comes up in a conversation, they know how to respond. You got like two minutes now. You can take as much time uh, as you want, but uh, we're, that's how much time I, we agreed to. <laughs> okay. Well, the cross is anathema for those who are perishing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Mormonism does not teach the cross. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's not a symbol that they 
care much about. In fact, one leader said, if Jesus died by a gun, would we wear bullets around our neck? And my answer is, well, if that's what atoned for my sins, yeah, I would wear a bullet around my neck <laughs> as a symbol of why I believe that uh, this is efficacious in my salvation. But here's the problem. Mormonism takes Jesus's bleeding in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we don't even know if it was. It said he sweat like drops of blood. Was it just sweat? Was it really blood? It's possible it could have been blood because there is a medical phenomenon that uh, you actually can have capillaries uh, burst, I guess, in your head. That's what doctors say uh, from such extreme stress. But as I said earlier, we're not saved by perspiration. The sacrificial victim had to die. It was expiation. The death had to take place. So you don't see Christians in the first two, 1,800 years before Joseph Smith ever point to the Garden of Gethsemane as somehow having life-giving form as that is the, the hope that we have. No, it was always the cross. And the cross has been mocked by Latter-day Saints. They used to have a pageant here in Utah called the Mormon Miracle Pageant. And until about well, it's no longer going on now, but about 12 years ago, they had a scene where they mocked at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. They said it in a mocking tone and minimized that. That was deeply offensive to Christians, which is one of the reasons I think they took it out of that pageant. It was a live pageant on the side of a Mormon hill in, in Manti, Utah. Uh, and so... The, the, the idea of the Garden of Gethsemane never has played a role in the atoning uh, work of Christ historically with biblical Christianity. It wasn't something that came along until LDS leaders taught that to be true. And I'll say it hasn't been until the last 10, 15 years, maybe, where now you'll hear Latter-day Saint leaders talk about Gethsemane. They used to end it right there. And they said, and then he finished on the cross. They'll at least put the cross in. Earlier leaders, and I can show you dozens of quotes where the leaders said it was at the Garden of Gethsemane, period. Uh, but now they like to have that as a conclusion. The cross was not the conclusion. It was the climax. Yeah. Jesus didn't say it is finished in the garden. He said it on the cross. It is finished right before he died. So I think yeah. that needs to be taken into consideration. I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, hey, with that, man, we had, uh, man, this conversations just go so fast and there's so much more to talk about but hey there's a whole book that you guys can get um you know we mentioned it a little bit at the beginning um links to mrm.org is down below if, you, if people are watching on youtube uh but where can people go to kind of get just more information uh on this book as well as other things you guys are doing they can go to introducingchristianity.com. I have a lot of bells and whistles. I have a lot of bells and whistles here. I have a glossary in the back that tells you the difference of the terms, and, and I think that's a really valuable thing. I have an introductory paragraph that's the conclusion, the summary of the chapter. I have questions at the end as well, uh, five questions you could use this in a group study. I have possible answers on this website, introducingchristianity.com. I have links to four places you can get the book. You can get it on our website mrm.org you can get it at amazon.com christianbooks.com barnesandnoble.com probably other places i'm not even uh, familiar with but uh, I, I would recommend christians get this book and especially if you don't know very much about christianity because i'm being told by those who are reading this this is a great refresher course to remind christians what they believe but uh, yeah any of those websites but the introducingchristianity.com will take you to any of those Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time and helping us think well about the topic of Christianity and Mormonism. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. 
Absolutely. It's been wonderful. All right, everybody. Again, there is the book. Check it out. Grab it. Grab a copy and be willing to maybe hand those out to uh, LDS friends, family, people that come to your door as well as be better prepared yourself to have those sort of conversations. Uh, as we move forward, there's always going to be fun stuff happening. As I mentioned before, October 19 is an interview with Dr. Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries on the, his book coming out on truth. Also, I just today received a copy of the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith from the Discoveries Institute in the mail. I'm going to be reaching out to different authors and contributors to that book, having some conversations on science and faith. So if you want to have uh, a conversation on a specific science and faith issue, message me that issue that you want to talk about, and I'll try to find a relevant scholar to have a conversation on that. As well as there's always going to be tons of interviews and other videos that pop up over here to help you continue to think well about faith, about life, about Christianity, and how to engage and evangelize this culture. You can check out the website, become a supporter of Think Well, and help us continue to do this ministry. And as always, we pray that you continue to think well about God, Jesus, and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Thank you so much for being here and for just allowing us to share this stuff with you. And I pray that it has encouraged you and blessed you. Have a good rest of your day. See you next week with another conversation. Bye, everybody. Guide my way.